join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Without asking you to predict where policy and politics might go from here as of today on Thursday afternoon, is the current policy status quo compatible with the assumptions of the best case scenario? No. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. As usual, my pal JMM asks the spot-on key question and gets a very honest, if disheartening, answer from Dr. Staney Brown, the head of the province's health table. Despite a constant drumbeat for some kind of paid sick days program, the provincial government responded, but as you just heard, with a program that one of the province's most important doctors thinks won't get the job done. We'll look into that. Plus, a conversation with journalist Fatima Syed, who explains why the positive COVID-19 test numbers are through the roof in Peel region and what can be done about it. It's Tuesday, May the 4th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, the province of Ontario this past week experienced its 8,000th death from COVID-19. We put that on the record as we consider the health table's latest modeling numbers for how we're doing. So let's start there. The lockdown. Is it actually having a positive impact? We have seen the number of new daily cases start to come down um, slower than I would like, but it is coming down. Uh, And the total number of people sick with COVID in Ontario on any given day has also started to slowly come down. The hitch is that they are coming down, as I say, very slowly, and the pressure on the hospitals really hasn't eased up at all. Uh, Last Friday, we had 900 people in ICU beds in Ontario. Uh, That is the highest number that we've seen over the course of the pandemic. And uh, over the weekend, that number dropped only very little by about, you know, 10 cases. Uh, so it, the same thing is true this week that was true last week. Uh, the the real uh, spotlight right now has to be on the hospital system and uh, the incredible strain that uh, doctors and nurses and hospitals are all under right now. But if we are looking for something positive to take out of the last week or week and a half or so, we, we went through a space of time where we were getting well over 4,000 positive test cases a day. We're under that right now. So that's encouraging, I presume. Yeah, having the numbers lower is better than having them higher. Um, we are uh, seeing that average come down. I, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but uh, the average now is below uh, 4,000. And uh, it, it is trending downwards. Um, my my sense is that it is not falling as quickly after the third wave as it did after the second wave, uh, as a for example. And so that's one of the, the points of concern I have, that... Um, to to really relieve the hospitals, you want to see those cases drop as fast as possible. And they aren't dropping at the moment uh, as fast as we've seen in previous waves. Now, I do want to ask you about what I thought was the key question asked of Dr. Staney Brown, uh, which was, are the policy changes brought in by the government of Ontario going to be enough to flatten the curve? You asked that question and, you know, he gave another classic pause before answering And then he gave you a very blunt, although not terribly optimistic answer. Tell us about the exchange. 
you know, this is one of those uh, times where I think about the the advice that lawyers get: <laughs> never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Um, journalists, actually, at least I certainly have uh, normally followed the different advice of, of asking all the questions I don't know the answer to. But in this case, we had uh, a presentation from Dr. Brown uh, that laid out the uh, policy recommendations that they are making, or at least implicitly making, right? They, they lay out a best-case scenario and what kind of policy assumptions they put into their model to get that best-case scenario. Uh, and those policies include um, very generous uh, sick, uh, paid sick leave, uh, a much narrower uh, list of essential industries that are allowed to stay open during uh, the lockdown, uh, greater supports for people who are put out of work because of those uh, industry shutdowns. These things all go into the model. And, you know, I can read that briefing and I can read that presentation and tell you what that sort of means or what I think it means for policy. But, you know, like nobody cares what I think. (laughs) And so, you know, that's why we ask experts these things. And so I asked Dr. Brown, you know, whether uh, the reality of Ontario uh, on this was Thursday afternoon uh, of uh, uh, April in 2021. And, uh, you know, I asked him whether that policy status quo uh, matched the assumptions of the model. And well, we got his answer. Indeed, we did. Well, let us get to uh, the paid sick days plan, because this was a policy announcement the government has, it seems, been trying for months not to have to make. Um, Maybe a bit of background here first. We know that too many people are testing positive for COVID-19 because they just feel they've got to go to work. They got to go to work so they can collect a paycheck to keep feeding their families and keep a roof over their heads. But a consensus, a significant consensus, actually, of Ontarians has been urging the government to bring in a paid sick days program the government has resisted until now. Give us some of the details of what it's now announced. This was an interesting thing to watch unfold because we saw the government uh, start to make a proposal uh, early last week about what they wanted to see in terms of changes to the uh, federal government Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, uh, the CRSB. And the federal government came forward and said, well, we're not going to talk about changes to our plan until you bring in uh, paid sick leave. Uh, So now we have three days of paid sick leave that happens to match the benefit guaranteed in uh, federal law. And what is going to happen with this provincial program is that uh, workers will be entitled to three paid sick leaves from their employer, and then their employer is going to be able to claim that back from the government through the uh, WSIB, uh, one of the sort of uh, workers' safety insurance uh, programs. And so this is a way that the government is hoping to get part of the way towards paid sick leave for workers without necessarily uh, landing the whole financial burden on businesses. You know, it's still not a great economic time for businesses, and I think the government is looking to, to try and uh, minimize the costs to them. All right. Having brought in a plan that 80% of Ontarians say is necessary, what's the initial feedback been to the government's offering? <laughs> uh, not enthusiastic, I think, is, is a fair um, summary. Uh, you know, lots of workers' advocates say that this is insufficient, uh, that instead of being temporary, as this program currently is, that it should be permanent. Uh, lots of public health experts saying that three paid days is uh, really not sufficient. Uh, you know, 
people have to self-isolate for uh, 14 days under the current rules if they have a close contact who, who tests positive for COVID-19. And one of the people who knows that very well right now is Premier Doug Ford, whose uh, period of self-isolation is going to be ending very soon now. And so in that sense, you know, lots of people have found uh, lots of reasons to uh, not love this uh, latest provincial offering. Now, Premier Doug Ford did say, he did promise, I'm going to bring in the best program in North America as it relates to paid sick days. And while the critics say this isn't enough, does he have a leg to stand on with his boast that this is, in fact, the best paid sick day program in all of North America? Well, I mentioned that this now matches the federal guarantee in uh, the, in the Canada Labor Code. Um, so any federally regulated worker has the same number of paid sick days, uh, but no other province uh, guarantees as many. Uh, I think the other two provinces that offer paid sick days, it's like two and one. Um, the most charitable thing I think you could say about this uh, program is that it's not actually supposed to function on its own. It's not supposed to happen in a vacuum. This is supposed to work with the uh, federal uh, sickness benefit. And if you combine the two, it might work uh, relatively well. And if, you know, I remember I was saying that this sort of happened because the province was looking for improvements to the federal uh, CRSB and this was all part of the negotiations. If the province gets the improvements to the federal benefit that it is looking for, in theory, what you could see is a Ontario worker get those three paid sick days and then use that time to get really good, fast access to a generous federal benefit. That's theoretical, and there's actually a lot of really important details that need to be worked out in terms of making sure that these programs don't cancel each other out, because the way the rules are currently written, they might. Um, but I think those are solvable problems if there are people uh, of goodwill <laughs> uh, between Ottawa and Queen's Park. Um, right now, I think the, the, the program is better than nothing, uh, certainly, and it's better than what came before. I understand why lots of people um, find it unsatisfactory. Uh, but as I say, I think if it's not the best thing in North America, uh, it's it certainly has the potential to get better quickly. No, I hear you. But I also hear Premier Ford saying, my progressive conservative government has a more generous program in place right now than the NDP government of British Columbia. And on <laughs> yes. that, he's not wrong, is he? Uh, no, no. And, um, you know, I think one of the stories that is going to be very interesting coming out of the pandemic is uh, what kind of discussions were happening uh, in the Premier's Club, uh, if I can put it that way, because uh, there's a lot of stuff about the last year that looks to me like uh, the Premier's um, uh, had a sort of... Um, gentlemen's agreement uh, and they i believe mostly are uh, all gentlemen at this point um uh, to make as few big expensive changes as they could because you know that with ontario now having um moved forward on this the pressure on uh horgan's government in, in bc or uh other provinces for that matter is going to be uh they're going to be under a lot of pressure to to move in other provinces as well now Mm -hmm. And I am going to fact check John Michael McGrath, and he is quite right, as he almost always is. We have 10 provinces and three territories, and of all those 13 jurisdictions, uh, 12 male premiers, one female premier. So yes, when you talk about a gentleman's agreement, it virtually <laughs> exclusively is.
And it wasn't that long ago that we had, was it four or five women premiers all at the same time? Representing 80% of the population of the country. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. That was then. This is now. <sighs> yes. Well, let me also note that this plan would require businesses to foot the bill up front for their employees' sick days, but then those businesses, I guess the idea would be they would apply to the government to get reimbursed. The NDP agreed with that approach. The Liberals, inter interestingly enough, they put forward a private member's bill that put the entire burden on businesses to assume this cost with no repayment by the provincial government. Now, obviously, those opposition bills don't matter anymore because the government's put up its own offering. Um, but what did you think about those differences? You know, I hear from a lot of people who don't understand why the province is effectively subsidizing large companies like Amazon to give workers paid sick leave. And, you know, they're right. That is what we are doing uh, with this law now. But I guess what I would say is that, you know, the pandemic is still an emergency and fast programs are better than perfect programs. And um, if we want to go after the the windfall that some businesses like Amazon uh, have made from the pandemic, we can tax some of this money back later. That's, uh, you know, a, a tried and true method for governments uh, historically. So, um uh, yeah, I, I understand why uh, the government uh, is looking to give business a break in this, um, uh, the, the design of this program, and I, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We pointed out last week in this space that Doug Ford is starting to come down hard on the federal government for failing to stop COVID-19 at the border, and he wants a tougher crackdown on international travelers, particularly those from India, where, as we know, the outbreak is frighteningly out of control. But here are the facts. I always like dealing with facts, right? Empirically provable facts. From April 17 to 24, not that long ago, we had 33,000 new infections in Ontario, almost half from close contact and only 406 from travelers. That's 406 out of more than 33,000. What does that tell you? Well, I think the short version is that uh, the government and, and Premier Ford are um, trying to make this issue about foreign travel and, uh, and foreign people <laughs> coming into Canada, although frankly, I, I suspect uh, at this point, a large number of the people coming into Canada are um, either Canadian-born or dual citizens. Um, yeah, the facts don't really back this up, except in the most sort of general sense that COVID-19 did not come from Canada. Um, the the fundamental failure, uh, and I don't deny that there have been federal failures, and, and I think that there's a lot of things you could reasonably criticize about border policy at the moment, but the fundamental failure to control COVID is not in the federal sphere right now. The, um, the, the, the provincial policies are what have gone wrong, and the... I understand why the premier doesn't want to talk about that and would rather that we all talk about uh, federal failures. But, you know, facts are stubborn things, as the saying goes. <laughs> facts are stubborn things. Yes, indeed. Well, last week was a big week for long-term care, so let's go there now. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has, um, over the past few weeks, established a new practice of having a virtual news conference every morning. He does it from his dining room table, usually around quarter to nine, nine o'clock in the morning. And by doing so, he kind of gets the jump on the other parties, which tend to make announcements later in the day. Anyway, last week he wanted to talk about long-term care. So I did ask him what his party's plans were, should they form the next government. And let's listen to a bit of that exchange, and then we'll come back and chat. Good morning again. And good morning, Steve. 
I know the NDP's position is to nationalize all long-term care homes in the province. Is that your position? You know, we've, I've gone through a series of consultations on this. I've spoken to so many who work on the front lines. I've spoken to members of family members of those living in nursing homes, certainly heard from, uh, from a lot of different kinds of operators. Ontario Liberals are still in the midst of our platform consultation, but I will say it's becoming increasingly clear that it's just not a good situation when you're in a world where for this kind of care that is so critical and so badly needed, uh, mixing the notion of profiteering up against care, uh, to me, it's just inconsistent. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I don't think you can flick a switch and make it happen responsibly overnight, uh, but, I, but I believe that there is, uh, I believe that it's not compatible uh, to have a, uh, in the long term, uh, to have a, uh, the opportunity for private interests to supersede the kind of care that these homes should be providing uh, to, the, uh, to the seniors that we have in this province. So stay tuned for more details. Now, I know Del Duca essentially said stay tuned, but to my ears, John Michael, that sure sounds like both major opposition parties now are going to be campaigning on nationalizing long-term care homes in Ontario. I raise this because I think the last estimate I saw put a price tag of around $4 billion on taking over all private long-term care homes in the province. And, um, well, uh, listen, I don't know. I'm not the Minister of Finance, but that feels like a cost that may be beyond the financial wherewithal of the Ontario government. Meantime, we should also note that the province's long-term care task force issued its recommendations to the government last Friday, nationalizing all 625, I think, long-term care homes in Ontario was not among their recommendations. So do we assume now that um, that's all the cover this government needs not to have to do that? Well, we just finished talking about their reluctance to move on paid sick leave, uh, which is likely going to end up costing less than uh, $4 billion, less than the cost of taking over all of long-term care. Uh, so it doesn't seem very likely, does it? <laughs> um, you know, one idea I've heard floated is that um, you could leave private companies in the role of building and maintaining long-term care homes, but uh, taking the actual day-to-day -day operations out of the for-profit space. And I have no idea what the cost difference on that would be, if that would be more affordable for governments or, or less, I, I just don't know. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of thing that the government might look at. And in some ways, actually, it sounds uh, a lot like the public-private partnership model that the Liberals uh, used a lot when they were in power, uh, you know, where a private company would um, build the hospital and the government would rent it back or lease it back effectively over a period of decades. Um, but the NDP, for example, were, were also very vocal critics of the P3 model. Uh, so you could see them opting for a, a total takeover of both ownership and operations. You know, this is all uh, extremely hypothetical uh, at the moment. But, you know, the, there's, there's a bunch of different ways they might go. Um, but as you say, the, um, the, the price tag is going to be daunting for a progressive conservative government. Mm -hmm. And we should say that uh, you and I go back and forth on this in this week's On Pauly newsletter. And if people want to get a hold of that, they can just Google On Pauly newsletter, hashtag On Pauly newsletter for TVO and find it and subscribe to it because there's certainly a lot more to say about long-term care and we do there. Now, last week also saw the return of, what shall I call this? It's, it's really one of the oldest campaign tricks in the book, namely doing everything you can to connect a current leader to a previously unpopular leader. So the Tories <laughs> sent out an e-blast this past week and it said the following, Remember the Wynn Del Duca liberals? 
Time and again, they put their well-connected liberal insiders ahead of Ontario families. They made life more unaffordable every chance they got. In contrast, our progressive conservative government is taking action to make life easier. Do you support our plan to put families ahead of special interest groups? Stand with Premier Ford and chip in here today if you're able. And it's signed Peter Bethlenfalvy, the MPP for Pickering Uxbridge, who, of course, is also the Minister of Finance, who I also suspect had no idea that this note was going out <laughs> under his signature. Anyway, we talked last week in this space about how we suspected the PCs would present a wedge issue for an e-blast for the purposes of collecting more emails and then following up with a fundraising request. And what do you know? That's exactly what they did. But we've actually seen this movie before these guys have tried it as well, haven't we? You know, today you have the government railing against the Wynne Del Duca liberals. Uh, two elections ago, the Tories were uh, campaigning against the McGinty Wynne liberals. Uh, but the liberals, of course, uh, are no strangers to this either. Uh, back in 2003, uh, they campaigned against the Harris Eves Tories. And uh, as you and I both know, Steve, uh, they continued to campaign against Mike Harris and Ernie Eves for several election cycles after that. <laughs> It's so funny. You know, Mike Harris has been out of power for 20 years, but he's still the boogeyman for a lot of people. Yes. Uh, and quite correct. You know, the, the liberals wanted to tie Ernie Eves, the new and relatively popular, actually, at the time, conservative leader to the previous and not very popular Mike Harris. Uh, so the liberals, I, I remember this, they constantly referred to the Harris Eves conservatives, the Harris Eves conservatives. Everything wrong in Ontario was because of the Harris Eves conservatives. And it, it's a good lesson in what goes around comes around. Now, apparently, the red team is the Wynne Del Duca liberals. And I am, of course, waiting for the moment to see whether or not the liberals respond with a campaign next year against the Ford Brown Hudak Tory Eves Harris conservatives. <laughs> and that'll bring it all full circle. You know, on this theme, there was uh, one thing that stood out to me from uh, Premier Ford's news conference on Friday when he accused the liberals under Kathleen Wynne and, of course, Stephen Del Duca uh, of uh, cutting up the Greenbelt for, quote, their developer buddies. And uh, I almost don't even know what to say about that accusation because it's actually so funny to me. Uh, I have reported on uh, planning and development issues in Ontario for about a decade now, and... Um, I guess I'll just say that if the development industry loved the liberals so much and they had so many, uh, if the Liberal Party had so many buddies among the developers uh, because of their land use policies, that is, uh, that is news to me. And I would love for the premier to show his research on that. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing it either. Okay. Well, one thing that is not disputable is that one of the areas in this province that has been hardest hit by COVID is Peel region, just west of Toronto, in particular, Mississauga and Brampton. Fatima Syed has been chronicling the region's story. She's a freelance journalist and host of Canada Land's new podcast. It's called The Backbench. And she joined us to talk about how government policy has played out there and why Peel Region has been hit so hard. Fatima, let's start with this. Why do you think Peel Region in particular was hit so hard? I think it was hit hard because the the province's one-size-fits-all approach didn't f take into account that this region is just too complicated. Uh, there are too many communities here of uh, all kinds, of all cultures, of all languages, and there is a huge workforce here that was never once properly taken into account into the province's pandemic strategy. Um, you know, I, I've said this so many times, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad people are finally noticing that while other cities were able to stand still, Peel never stood still. I live in an apartment in Mississauga, and 
next to a very busy road and the cars never stopped. Um, people still went to work. People still left their homes, their buildings uh, to go to factories, warehouses, to go to the airport. Um, and and that was never once taken into account. And, and we're seeing the results of that now where Peel is still one of the hardest hit regions, not just in the province, but in the entire country. You're article for the local, uh, I mean, it, it's it's both a very um, humane treatment of this topic, but it's also got some really important numbers in there. Uh, for our listeners, what is the percentage of uh, Peel's workers who have to work outside the home? So according to the Toronto Region Board of Trade, um, who did a study on this, 53% of Peel's workers uh, have to go to work. There, there's no way for them to stay at home. And and if you look at just the volume of economic activity that happens in the region, we're talking about 40% of uh, packages uh, in Amazon being processed here. We're talking about 60% of trucking services beginning here. That's a lot of uh, equipment and just uh, work being done that has never once stopped uh, since the pandemic began. And, and, and if you just think about the conditions of these warehouses, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of people working in a space um, with no mandated protections. Uh, we don't know what sanitization uh, conditions are like. We don't know, uh, you know, what kind of protection these workers are being given. But one can imagine based on, you know, what we're hearing about outbreaks, what we're seeing in terms of case numbers, that it's probably not that great. Um, and... Um, it's it's hurting the entire region. So clearly there's a big chunk of people in the workforce that cannot work from home. Uh, that's one thing that makes Peel region distinctive. What about, uh, what are some other reasons that might make Peel uh, so susceptible to COVID-19? I think there's been a real lack of um, effort put into actually educating the reason, uh, the region rather. Um, this is a very multicultural and diverse community, as I've said, bef- like at the beginning. Um, there are so many languages spoken here. There's so many different cultures and, and there's also very different practices, right? Like we're talking about the largest number of multi-generational households in the province existing in Peel, you know, grandparents taking care of young kids while their own kids go out to work, bringing home COVID, they get infected. Like if you talk to a doctor in Peel and you ask them for a story of, you know, a memorable COVID patient, if that's not a dark question to ask them, (laughs) they will tell you about, you know, treating a worker or the family member of a worker. The one that sticks out to me the most is, you know, uh, one doctor told me that he treated a grandmother who um, had never once gone to the hospital alone and was like came to the hospital and died alone without her family and just the guilt that he had to address in her kids and her grandkids for for just you know bringing COVID home but not knowing how not to bring COVID home because they had to go to work they had to support their family they had to put food on the table um and these communities were not really like addressed by any government, you know, Peel region did start translating uh, COVID specific instructions and and dialogues, uh, 
but several months into the pandemic. By then, the spread had already started. Um, you know, the provincial government has done very little into, you know, translating their languages or, or actually doing effective and significant outreach to these communities to talk to them about how they are, what they need, what their specific issues are and challenges are and how best to address them. Um, so the lack of outreach combined with the, the family structures that exist here, both from a cultural standpoint and an economic standpoint, plus a large worker's, you know, uh, a large number of workers that that are still leaving their house has just it's it's just been an equation that's led to complete disaster unfortunately there's obviously the the macro story of the the incredible uh, infection in peel and and the spread there um i'd like to drill down on on the more of a micro story uh, can you tell our listeners about gurdeep dillon so Gurdeep Dillon is um, an airport limo driver, um, and, and he has been doing that job for 35 years. Um, so basically for as long as he's been in Canada, um, it's, it's a job that he takes immense pride in. If you talk to him, he says, you know, I was the first person someone visiting Canada would meet. It was my duty to welcome them, to take them where they need to go, um, you know, whether it's their new home, if they're a new immigrant, or to like the best place they could go to, you know, having just arrived. He was he was the gateway for them to the entire province and the country. And, and he took immense pride in that. In the first few weeks of the pandemic, when it when, you know, airports were shut down and Ontario announced a state of emergency, um, he wasn't provided any PPE. He was still doing his job and picking up passengers. And, uh, you know, he he, were, he told me that he remembers picking up the, this couple from Hong Kong who were all masked up. And he looked at them really confused and he tried to ask them if he should be wearing a mask. And, and they didn't speak English very well. So, you know, all they could convey to him is if you want to. Um, but he didn't have a shield. He didn't have the proper masking equipment at the time. So he sort of didn't and drove them to their destination. In the weeks that followed, he lost 10 of his colleagues. Uh, some of them he'd been working with for 35 years. And it, it remains the highest known death count at, at an Ontario workplace. And, and hearing him talk about that was just incredibly devastating and, and really showed you how, really showed you the neglect the extent of the neglect of, of uh, leadership that did not take into account that there would still be workers doing their jobs, even if the order was given to the entire province to stay at home. Fatima, you and I and John Michael, through the course of doing our jobs, we hear a lot of scuttlebutt. And it's not necessarily stuff that people want to put on the record or put their names to, but we hear about it. And uh, so I'm just going to ask you very directly about this. Uh, I have heard numerous sources say to me, well, of course, the, the numbers are off the charts in Peel. There are a lot of South Asians there who are disregarding the provincial protocols. They are gathering uh, in, in huge numbers, and that's why the numbers are, are as bad as they are. Uh, let's, let's deal with empirically provable facts here. True or false? I can't answer it in binaries, unfortunately, because it so first of all, it is unfair for them to uh, pick up on the fact that it's the South Asian community that is to blame. Peel is 60 percent, six, over 60 percent visible minority. So it, it, it's easy to draw that conclusion. But 
you know, colloquially, for those of us who have been reporting on this or just watching what's going on, every community has broken pandemic rules at some point. We've had to. Like, it's it's for mental health reasons. You've gone to your friend's backyard. You've, you've you know, celebrated your religious holiday together because it just felt uncomfortable to not do it. And you've tried to do it in the best way, whether it's remaining in your bubble, remember those, or, you know, doing it in your backyards or, or in a park or something. Every single community, despite color, creed, religion, culture, has broken the rules at some point. And anyone who says they doesn't is lying. Um, you know, it, it is human to do this. So I will call it out for what it is. It is completely racist of, of leaders to pick up on the fact that the most diverse region is breaking the rules because we're brown. I'm sorry, but I'm South Asian. I live in Mississauga and I have not I and yet I have tried to be safe while hanging out with friends or going for walks in parks or celebrating. This is now going to be my my second Ramadan and my third Eid that I've done uh, social distanced. And I've you know I've seen my cousins in parks from far away. You know the the six feet apart kind of things on, on each of those occasions. Um, yes, we've gathered, but we've done it in a safe way. I remember pictures of temples during Diwali where you know. Everyone was wearing face shields and double mask and and social distancing and 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 doing their relig- their religious rites. It is not fair for elected officials to just pin it on these communities and and their law breaking ways. The fact of the matter is is these are the communities that are running the economy. They're keeping Canada open and and going. They're they're not letting Canada completely crash. And, and for them to not even acknowledge their contributions and just say, oh, yeah, well, they're brown and they just hang out and they live in large groups and they like to socialize. It's it's completely baffling and frankly dangerous for that rhetoric to exist. That's actually something I want to pick up on, because I think one of the points your article makes very well, and it was it was an intuition that I'd had for a while, but I hadn't been able to put it into words. So I'm grateful for, for your article it's not you know, we can argue about you know responsibility or whatever but you know peel region is getting cases so that other parts of the province and other parts of the country don't and i'm wondering if you got any sense from the the workers that you spoke with uh, do do they have a, a consciousness of that are are they aware of that how do they feel about it i think the workers know that they're putting themselves at risk every single day I think the workers know that every time they leave their house and go to work, there is a chance that they bring COVID home and they bring COVID into the community. But I think the workers also need the paycheck. We're, we're talking about Peel Region, which has one of the highest housing prices in the region in in the province, um, and 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 about you know these workers have large families to support. They live with ailing uh, you know grandparents. They live with young children who need supports. They you know they have uh, relatives back home to support. Um, this is a complicated community, as I've said at the start. And I think the workers know that there is a risk to both themselves and their community. And I think like you know when they tell me that in the same you know almost simultaneously they will tell me that they have felt completely abandoned by the government. Because if the government and the elected officials cared about them, then maybe they would have found a way to save them from contracting COVID while also letting them earn money and and keep them home and support their families. So there is a duality when you talk to them where this is a a much needed thing. Going to work is a much needed thing for them. 
but putting themselves at risk didn't have to be. Fatima, let's finish up on this. We, uh, of course, follow the daily positive test counts very carefully. And there were a few days in a row, not that long ago, where Brampton, which of course is the second biggest city in Peel, was hitting positivity rates of 22%. Just absolutely shocking. What are the experts telling you can be done or ought to be done by our political leaders in order to make it safer for the people who work and live in Peel? Look, no matter who you talk to in Peel, they just have three words, paid sick leave. That's it. Whether it's a teacher, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a city councilor or a mayor or just a a lowly worker, they need paid sick leave because we've seen the vaccine booking systems. You need time off to even just get an appointment. And then you need time off to actually go to that appointment or you need time off to stand in line to get that to even have a chance at that appointment. They need paid sick leave so that they can keep themselves and their community safe. And until governments give them that, that is effective, that is, um, you know, that caters to, uh, you know, their specific needs, like the amount of money they're making and their family structures and so forth, um, the spread of the virus in Ontario will not stop. You know, Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, uh, and Patrick Brown and every single city councillor says it best when they tell me that, you know, you will not be able to stop the spread of the coronavirus in Ontario or even in Canada if you don't stop it at Peel. And there are so many reasons for that, that we, which we've talked about, but really high on top of that list is the fact that the workers are still going to work. And until you give them time off to get the vaccine to save themselves and their families, you're not going to be able to save every other Canadian. Fatima Sayed, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That was freelance journalist Fatima Sayed. And finally, let's get one more item in here. JMM, you know how I occasionally like to travel down the road of Queen's Park nostalgia? Uh, I know this, and so do all of our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Well, I know the day this podcast is dropping is a big one on your Star Wars calendar, right? Uh, May the 4th, as in May the 4th be with you, Steve. Thank you very much, and also with you. Uh, But for us on Poly Nerds, it's got other significance, too. On this date, May the 4th, in 1973... One of the most successful premiers in Ontario history died, and this gives us an occasion to remember him. Leslie Frost was the last premier to win three straight majority governments, which he did in 1951, 55, and 59. No one has won three straight majorities since, although Dalton McGuinty came one seat short in 2011. Now imagine this. Premier Frost was so talented, he was so in charge of his government, that not only was he the premier, but he was also his own finance minister during part of his 12 and a half years as premier. And that may be why the Ministry of Finance on Queen's Park Crescent in downtown Toronto is called the Frost Block, named after him. Frost brought in this province's first ever retail sales tax, which people nicknamed the Frostbite. That's a clever (laughs) name. His own nickname was Old Man Ontario, or some people also called him the Silver Fox. He's buried in Lindsay, Ontario, and he was 77 when he died. So on this May the 4th, let's remember Leslie Frost as well, one of Ontario's truly great premiers. You know, you mentioned uh, Dalton McGuinty, and uh, I don't have a history anecdote here, but I, I do find myself thinking about alternative history a lot. And uh, in this case, you know, that that 2011 election is one of the great sort of what-ifs of Ontario political history. Uh, you know, it was a one-seat difference, one more liberal seat 
and they would have had a majority in the legislature. And you and I know the difference between a majority and a minority. It's not like a, a an incremental thing. It's all or nothing, right? If the liberals had had a majority in the legislature, we would have never seen uh, all of the lengthy, painful committee investigations that the liberals faced over those two natural gas plants in um, Oakville and Mississauga. They would have sh- simply shut those committee hearings down because that's what a majority allows you to do. You know, one seat and Dalton McGinty would have equaled Leslie Frost's accomplishment. Uh, and he likely, I think, would have left office uh, at a time of his own choosing instead of under a cloud of scandal, right? A few thousand votes in the, r- in the right riding could have made that difference. That is absolutely true. That's a very fair observation. And I remember some of the conversations that went on in liberal upper circles at the time saying, should we try to get somebody from the other side of the house to cross the floor and join us and get us our majority? And the conclusion they came to obviously was no, we shouldn't do that because that will give every single backbencher uh, an inordinate amount of power um, (laughs) to say, well, you know what, if uh, you don't go along with me on this, uh, I'll just simply... um, not vote with you guys, and that'll be the end of your government right there. So they didn't want to do that. And it's no idle threat. You know, we saw that happen in Manitoba. Uh, Howard Pauley, who was the premier of the day, uh, we're going back, I don't know what now, 25, 30 years, maybe more, 35 years, uh, who had a minority government and um, managed to get one guy to come over with him. And that guy held his government for ransom and one day decided, I don't want to support you anymore. The government fell and Howard Pauley was no longer premier. So, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, that's the way these things go. Always. Well, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you, as we always do, to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help make this podcast a little bit better. Or you can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now is my quote of the week, and we talked JMM off the top about the drumbeat of criticism the government was ignoring for months by declining to bring in a paid sick days program. Well, at question period last Wednesday, just before the government made its announcement, this was Niagara Falls MPP Wayne Gates in the legislature passionately urging the government to do what it would eventually do later that day. We just had a 13-year-old girl die because the worker was essential worker was going to work and brought COVID home. What are we doing? So when you can tell me that you're upset with me for saying that what I did, that's how I feel. I don't want anybody dying because they're a worker in the province of Ontario because this government won't provide paid sick days. That's what it's about, sir. It's about saving lives, making sure that worker can go to work and perform a fair day's work for a fair day's pay safely. That's Niagara Falls MPP Wayne Gates during question period last week. And my quote of the week is from Minister of Long-Term Care, Marilee Fullerton, uh, who spoke with reporters at Queen's Park on Monday morning, uh, but not for very long. Here's that clip. And again, I want to say I'm grateful to the Commission uh, for what they have uh, provided as a guide, and uh, we will move forward. So appreciate everyone's interest. Thank you. Minister, can you stay a little longer? There are more reporters on the phone line, and this is a very important issue. Do you have any more time? And we have questions from the floor, Minister. We have two questions from the floor, and we have people on the line who would like to ask more questions. I'm wondering why you're running out. And she's gone. That's Minister of Long-Term Care, Marilee Fullerton, and our colleagues at the Queen's Park Press Gallery trying in vain to get her to answer a few more questions at the legislature on Monday. And that was episode 110 of the On Poly podcast, 
Produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>